Let's look now at Genesis chapter 2. As we continue our series on relationships, um, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. Last week we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, but now we're going to go to the creation of man and woman and uh, the first marriage. Uh, but really look at community in its totality and in kind of a broad view of community. Let's begin in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God that redeems us for relationship, that from beginning to end, your plan, which cannot be stopped, and that is marching forward in our lives personally, in our community, in this church, and in the world, is to present your church, who is your bride, to your son Jesus, and to dwell with us forever. And so, Father, we look forward to that day, Uh, but now we need grace. In the meantime, we need you to come by your Spirit and comfort and inform and convict and convince. We need you to do in us what we can't do for ourselves. Oh, Father, we pray that your Spirit would come. And as he hovered over the water of the chaos prior to creation and then brought forth what we know as beautiful, true, and good, I pray, oh God, that you would do the same today by your Spirit that you would hover over our hearts that are chaotic, that you would hover over our relationships, that you would hover over our pain, and you would bring order and goodness and beauty and love and peace and rest and reconciliation. God, would you do that among us, for we need it. We pray that you would, in Jesus' name. Amen. Rachel and I had the joy of keeping our two uh, grandsons this past Monday, and uh, if you remember Monday, it was just a miserable day weather-wise. I mean, it was, that's when the cold front came in. It was dreary. And the last thing that you want to do is be locked in the house with a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a one-year-old um, on a day like that. And so Rachel and I decided we were going to go to the Wolf Chase Mall. They've got a carousel, a Chick-fil-A, and an indoor playground. So what else can you want when you're two-and-a-half and one? Or what else do you want when you're grandparents with a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a one-year-old? So... Uh, so we decided that our plan was we we're going to head off to the mall. Well, first you have to get 
a two-and-a-half-year-old and a one-year-old on your plan. Uh, Braden, who's two-and-a-half, kind of got it a little bit. You know, we can just get our eyes right and say something right, and he'll get excited, and he'll let you, know, let you get him ready. But Bennett, the one-year-old, has absolutely no ability to get on your plan. I mean, it's just crazy. So the first thing we have to do is change Bennett's diaper. And you get Bennett on the ground, and all he can see are the blocks, those big Lego blocks around him. So he's trying to roll his body, you know, do a quick move to get away so he can get his blocks. He doesn't want his diaper changed. And then once we have the diaper changed, we've got to get him dressed. And getting him dressed is about the same thing. I mean, he sees his toys on the floor, so he's like straightening his back. He's got this wrestling move, you know, where he just like straightens his back, slides down your leg, and he's off. You know, this is a one-year-old. So to get Bennett ready, to get him on our plan, you've got to wrestle him into it. You see, we have something better for him. We want to bless him. We want to take him to the Wolf Chase Mall. We don't have a carousel in our living room. We don't have Chick-fil-A in our living room. We don't have an indoor playground with, like, you know, mazes and slides. And I want to bless him. But in order to do it, I have to wrestle him. <laughs> Lovingly, forcefully wrestle him to get him into a plan that is better than the plan that he wants and he is crying out for. And dear friends, that is what God does with us in relationships. You see, our relationship with God, as we saw last week, is one of parent-child. And we're the child. <laughs> and we don't reach adulthood until glory. And so all of life, and when it comes to our relationships, is about God wrestling in and through our lives, through the brokenness especially, through the hurt and the pain especially, to get us to the point where we can be of some good to somebody else. You, you see, the purpose of relationships is to know God better. If you want to cry out to God, get married. <laughs> if you want to cry out to God, get a best friend. Because in the midst of our sin and betrayal, in the midst of our community where we are sinners and we're letting each other down and we're disappointing each other and we are hurting each other, we will cry out to God. So you're going to know God if you get deep in relationship or you're just going to drown in your self-pity and hurt and pain. You've got two directions to go, but you've got to go somewhere because one thing's for sure and that is sin. And yet in the midst of that, God changes us. He gets glory as we change, and we become some good to other people. That's what God is up to. And that's what we saw last week. We kind of started out here. Before we go to the specifics of different relationships, we started out here. And this week we're coming in just a little bit more. And we're still dealing with this whole context or, or concept of what is God up to in our relationships. And the first thing that I want us to see this morning is this, is... What he makes clear in Genesis 2 is what he's not up to. And that is, he is not up to giving us our space. If you're crying out to God for God to give you your space, he's not going to do it. One day this week, it was just particularly busy. 
I had a ton of text message conversations. I had a two-hour meeting with one person, a one-and-a-half-hour meeting with another, a two-and-a-half-hour meeting with somebody else. Um, I ran all over town in the midst of all that, returned 40 or processed 40 different emails. You know, I, I, and by the time I got home, I was exhausted. And Rachel and I were, um, you know, had to jump in the car and go meet somebody for dinner. And we had about a 30-minute drive, and I was, you know, she was talking. Uh, women have a whole lot more words than, than us men, and I promise you, I was done. So the more she's talking, the more I'm retreating to my personalized, you know, well-decorated man cave in my soul, you know. There were words going on in the car, but I wasn't living in those words. I was living in my man cave, um, dying, trying to think in my mind, how in the world am I going to conjure up enough energy to, to have dinner with two more people? I was drowning. I was dying. God says in our passage today, it is not good for man to be alone. But by the end of most days, that seems like the only option that is good. You know, I want to be alone. Please, God, give me aloneness. That's what I want. But not all days are like that. And not all seasons of life are like that. When we moved to Colorado, uh, we knew no one. I'll never forget that that first night. We got to our, we rented an apartment at first, and um, I was there in the apartment with the three girls, and we were setting it up. And Rachel, of course, what's the first thing you do when you move in? You go to Walmart. So uh, she headed to Walmart in Fort Collins, and she came back in tears, and she said, I don't even remember if she brought home anything, um, but she came back crying. I was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? You know, and, and she said, I was standing there in the middle of Walmart, and I thought I heard somebody I knew, and I turned around, and I realized it is not even remotely possible to see anybody that I know. Because I know no one. And this isn't vacation. This is our new reality. You see, we had come from a church of about 400. We had come from a community that, that we knew everybody. We'd spent all our lives in this one place, and overnight we are dropped into a city to plant a church, and we know not a soul in that city. And we grew together as a family, and that was one of the beautiful fruits of that time. But it was lonely. And all of us in this room have experienced those two extremes. Underwhelmed by people and lonely, or overwhelmed and burn out. So here we have the spectrum. So what do we do? I mean, you you see it. I mean, we saw it in Colorado. We we first get there. We don't know anybody, but then we started meeting people. You know, at first you're like accepting every invitation. You know, you're you're meeting with people you would never even talk to on the street. You know, if they invite you to go do something. Oh yeah, we're there. We're there. You know. But by the end, we're overwhelmed, and we're burnt out again. Well, we see it, you know, then we kind of, we're selective, and I just don't know that I can do it. We see it when one of our single friends gets married, you know. They go off, and they start making married friends. And we start wondering what's going on with our relationship. 
we're on the other side of that. We come to a new church and we don't know anybody and we get in a, a, a group. We finally find our niche and then other people want to break in. They want to come into our small group or they want to come into whatever. And we say, we can't be friends with everybody, you know. And we all said it. I can't be best friends with everybody, you know. I'm married now. This is my prime relationship. I, we get defensive. It's not good for the man to be alone. What does that mean? Here's a fear that I have this week. Because this is, there are two primary marriage passages in all of the Bible. I mean, you cannot talk about marriage unless you talk about Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5. And you've got to throw 3 in there as well, Genesis 3 as well. But here's what we do. We typically start here. And so if we start here, and all the only context we have is right here, it's not good for the man to be alone, so here's a wife and here's the first marriage, which it is. So that must be the only legitimate relationship. So what God is really saying here is just go ahead and say it, God. It is not good for man to be single. That's not what he's saying. Singleness is not some subpar relationship. Uh, Singleness is not some second-class citizen or status that you kind of have to wait around until you get really important when you get married. I mean, think about it. Christianity is the only leader that had, uh, the the only religion that had a leader who was not married. Jesus had no wife. So being single can't be sinful, okay? But how do we think about this? How do we think about it? I think what we've got to do is go back and see God's purpose for relationships. Um, do we have that chart? I'm not sure if it went. Let's look at this chart. Let's start at the top. See, most marriage and relationship teaching starts on step two. Man, Adam and Eve, fall. Ah, here are the problems. No. This is why we started last week with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You see, God wasn't sitting around for all eternity twiddling his thumbs thinking, boy, we're lonely. We got nothing to do up here. No. As we saw last week, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we'd see in our question this week, equal in substance and equal in power and glory. And so you have three perfect persons that are so united in a love relationship of deference and servanthood and seeking to bring, um, uh, to bring glory to the other, you have absolute satisfaction. And you see what exploded was not need but love because God is love and love has to give. You can't tell somebody you love them and not be dying for them. Your words mean nothing. Because if you, you, you sacrifice and you give for that which you love. And so God, what creation is, is God exploding. So we cannot contain it any longer. Boom, here's man. Oh, we know it's not good for man to be alone because all we know is community. And so boom, here's Eve. But then we come out from that. And we see in, in, in that society begins developing as, as Adam and Eve have children. Then in Genesis 12, um, God comes to one man and says, it, 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 God, it's, it's almost like, okay, we've got this marriage thing down, we got, but we've got, to have a, we've got to have a bride. And it's going to be the church. And here's Abraham, and I'm calling you out, and I'm your God, and you're my people. And in Genesis 15, we have another marriage ceremony. 
It's another covenant. God cuts a covenant with Adam, with Abraham. And he says, look, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I want you to do. Cut apart two animals and separate them. And that's what Abraham did. And then while Abraham is in some um, dreamland thing, he sees basically God walking through the two parts. And what God is saying is he didn't walk through with Abraham. He, he simply went through it himself. And what he was saying was, is let what happened to this animal happen to me if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. And here's my end of the bargain. I'm your God and you're my people and I will never leave nor forsake you. And and see, a covenant relationship, it doesn't depend on the obedience of the other. He's saying, even if you disobey me, I'm yours. And we see that. What happens? Adam and Eve, I mean, man is sinful. Abraham starts sinning right away in Genesis 15. The chapter doesn't even end. And Abraham's sinning. And what does God do? Well, I'm done with you. He sends his son to live and to die. Because that's what love does. My life for yours. You disobey me, I die for you. You offend me, I lay down my life for you. The church. And he sends the church where? To the world. (laughs) Go! Make disciples of everybody. Bring them into this love relationship. Isn't that beautiful? And then it's going to happen. Where? In glory. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a, in, in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Dear friends, that is where history is going. History is going to the day when we are united with Christ and we are united with one another. Now what you see in this progression, and you don't have to put it back up, but what you see in this progression is what is the relationship that falls by the wayside. Not the church, but marriage. Now here we get a little tricky. But we see it in Matthew chapter 22 uh, Jesus said this, he said, at the resurrection, Matthew twenty-two thirty, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. You say, so I'm not going to be married to my wife in heaven and heaven's better than now? Now, some of you may say, hallelujah, I'm not going to be married to my wife or my husband. Uh, it'll be better in heaven, but you get my point. I mean... That doesn't sound like glory. I mean, I hear some people, you know, and nobody here, you know, say, well, if my dog, and seriously, nobody in here has said this, if my dog's not in heaven, I don't want to go to heaven. I mean, I've literally had somebody tell me that. Well, you may feel that way about your spouse, too. Maybe not. Uh, your children as well. But here's, here's, here's the, the beauty of it. The beauty is that I will not only know Rachel perfectly and love her perfectly, I will know everyone in this room who is a child of God perfectly and love them perfectly. I mean, what assaults our sensibilities is this whole reality that I won't have a relationship that is set apart, but in glory, every relationship will be set apart. (laughs) 
And I don't even understand that. I can't get that. I've been, Rachel and I have been married um, 30 years this November. 30 years! And we dated three years before that. And I'm telling you that we have had seasons of intimacy and, and, and oneness. And we've had moments where I felt like, ah, oh, I know her so well. And she feels like she knows me so well. But I'm telling you, oneness has been elusive most of the time. And so you're telling me I can't even get that with one relationship and yet I'm going to have it with everyone? Do you understand that if that scares us, then it's not that our desires are too strong that we might know our wife and and our spouse and really experience oneness in one relationship, but they're, they're just too weak. Because what God is going to give us is more than just a perfect marriage with one person. He's going to give us a perfect community. And so God's design for our relationships is to give us more relationship. Now, who in here, let's go back to this, can be best friends with everybody? None of us. But who in here is called to be best friends with everybody? All of us. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence of the law. You say, Richard, so it's impossible. You got it. So once you understand that, then you begin to stop managing your relationships and you start living as a servant of God's. You begin to go through your day and say, God, I don't have the energy. When we ended up at dinner, I had to cry out to God in my soul. I don't have what it takes. I can't do this. I don't have anything else to give. I don't want to see these people. And it had nothing to do with them. It could have been the President of the United States. And I think my head was hurting so bad, it wouldn't have mattered. Because of me and my frailty. And yet, what does that do in my relationship? It says, you're a man that needs God. Dear friends, that's why we need relationships. So whatever relationship you're in, God does not want you... He doesn't want to give you more space. He wants you to love your neighbors you love yourself. So God's not up to giving us our space. But secondly, the purpose of Christian relationship is to give us a community that will fight for and sometimes against us for His glory. On our way to the mall Monday, Rachel and I, I, I just can't even describe what it's like to have grandchildren. I'm, I, know, I, you, I know you're tired of hearing this. But it, it's, just this, it's just the craziest thing to look in the back seat and to realize these are our daughter's sons. I mean, you know, I remember the day when my daughter Whitney was born. Like it was yesterday. And that child grew up, got married, and had these two kids in the back seat. That is just crazy, existential, weird. I mean, there's so many levels there that I, it's just crazy. But it's awesome. And so Rachel and I are having the most awesome time in the car, got the day off, going to, you know, going with the grandsons to the mall, hanging out, eating a little Chick fil A, you know. 
And so we get to the mall, or you know, we, we're coming up on the mall. We're we're on Germantown Parkway, and I take a right off of Germantown Parkway, and then it tees, and you can go left or right. And we're going to the entrance where the carousel is, which is on the back side. I, but I can't remember, is it closer to the left back side or the right back side? So I asked Rachel, which way would you go? She says, I would go right. Well, I was already thinking in my head, go left. So I obeyed. I went right. I submitted. But not really. I said, oh, so you really, you really think this is the shorter way? She looks at me like, are you kidding me? You just asked my opinion, I gave it, and now you're bucking me. Do you have to be right in every conversation? And every, I mean, Okay, two seconds before that, I'm in this existential moment of going back to Whitney, and, you know, and all of a sudden, I am thrown in the garden, and the war is on. And I want you to know, that's marriage. Because at the end of Genesis chapter 2, what do you see? The first song, the first work of art ever created by man. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman for she was taken out. This is, oh, this is my delight. I, this, now I know that I'm complete. I've been looking at all these animals. No, this is what I've been made for. You go 16 verses forward. God comes in the garden and said, how do you know that you're naked? He said, she did it. Take her. Bring down your wrath on that woman. It's your fault for giving me that thing. That's marriage. Naked, unashamed, alone, vulnerable. This is the best thing ever. I hate this woman. I wish she'd never been born. And that's community. That's every relationship. And how many of us can list the relationships that we've been through? Whether dating, whether friendships, whether church relationships. Oh, it's just one after the other. Man, oh, look at this person you need to meet. They're so awesome. Two weeks later, oh, they're talking about me. They're, they don't. You see, here's what we do. This is the essence of relational sin. I look at my wife as her, her mission statement really ought to be to make me feel good about me and to make me feel like I'm right every single time. I mean, that was the essence of sin in the garden. What did the serpent say to Eve? Did God really say, don't eat from that tree? See, what are we just saying? You can, I mean, you can think better. You're right. He ain't right. Mm. That's what I want Rachel to do. That's what I want you guys to do. I want you to make me feel like I'm right. That's the essence of sin. And so that's why we need a helper suitable. Verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, so I'll make a helper suitable. The ESV says fit, a helper fit for him. This Hebrew word helper does not mean maid or administrative assistant. It doesn't mean somebody to come along and endorse our plans and support everything we do because we're right. God made one person in the relationship right. No. And the reason that we know that, because if you go to Genesis, uh, excuse me, Psalm 27, you, you, you read this. The psalmist says, Do not hide your face from me, talking to God. Do not turn your servant away in anger, for you have been my helper. God is man's helper. Psalm 
30, verse 10. Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. So, this Hebrew word for helper is someone that we need when we are in a desperate situation. It's someone really in war. It's typically used for war. It's somebody that we need when, when our lives depend on it and we know that we can't fight alone. We need somebody to come alongside with us and fight with us and for us. There's a real sense in which Adam is just as much Eve's helper as Eve is Adam. And where do we see this? We see this in the fall. I mean, the fall didn't just expose Eve, it exposed Adam. Where was Adam when the serpent was tempting Eve? He was not her helper. He was not coming alongside of her and helping her think and respond. It wasn't the two of us can face the world. No, it was you're on your own and you better make the right decision. Don't make me look bad. And boy, have you blown it now. Look what you did. The word suitable is a Hebrew word that means like but unlike. You say, how can you have someone who's like or and unlike you? It's, it's, it's a compliment. I mean, the way that we know clothes match is they're like but unlike, but not too much unlike. You know, you don't want to wear this color. But they complement each other. They are opposite, but they complement, and that's what we have here. It's like our relationship with God. We are made in His image, so we are like but unlike Him. How are we unlike Him? He's holy, we're sinful. So when I'm around God, guess what He shows me? My sin. And yet, what does God do? He comes to me, and He doesn't just show me his, my sin, but He shows me a bigger picture called His grace and the cross. And that's relationship. You see it in Ephesians chapter 5. Before we get into the whole marriage thing, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands as the Lord, before we get into all that, it begins like this. People, church, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, husbands love your wives. And you see, there's a sense in which God submitted to us back in Genesis 3. Uh, We see His wrath. Oh, I'm going to curse you. No, 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 no. But we see His grace. I'm going to send a seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of Satan. And the march continues until Jesus is born. The Messiah comes and then He goes to the cross and he, He vanquishes the grave as He rises on the third day. He says, I do this for my bride. And that's all relationship right there. The reason that He's given us each other is that we might fight for each other. We are like but unlike each other. That's why we can see each other's sin so well. Because we're like but unlike. I get you because I'm like you. In sin, maybe I don't do that sin. Haven't you heard that at times? You felt that, haven't we? I may be sinful, but I've never done that. Well... You've probably done something, you have done something a whole lot worse in that moment by judging the person feeling better because you hadn't done that sin. I mean, that, anyway, it's a whole other sermon that we'll get to in a couple weeks. But, um, had a friend this week, Friday morning, I had breakfast with a good friend, and he told me that his wife, they found tumors on her bladder, and he started to tear up. 
And he said, yeah, we've got surgery scheduled for Thursday. I was thinking, man, that's fast. Do you see what happened there? You see that progression? There's the cancer. Let's cut it out. Do you understand that's why God has given us each other? We are MRI machines for one another. We are not judges. We can help diagnose, but then we're helper suitable. We come along and we fight. Maybe we got we got to show you this like a doctor. I can't. I, I could never be a doctor and walk in that room and say, "Yeah, you've got cancer. You've got three months." I, I don't know how you do that. But do you understand? That's what we're all called to do with each other. Man, I'm no better than you, but brother, sister, this is in your life. Now let's go after it together. All the help you need is there. I will not leave you nor forsake you because God has not left me nor forsaken me. Well, what do we do? What do we need help with? Look at chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. There's our job, whatever that job is. Raising children, going to the bank going to pick up trash, whatever. Going to write a sermon. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So what do we need help with? We need help just simply to do what God's called us to do in life, and we need help to obey God. The reason Eve sinned is because... Adam wasn't there to help her and be her her helper suitable. And that was a problem. Are we there for one another? Well, you sinned. Well, you should have been there. (laughs) Why did you do that? No. Why weren't you with them? I knew you were going to do that. Then why didn't you do something about it? Do you see it? It's community. That's what we're there for. So love relationship doesn't just exist in a marriage, but it exists in the church in which we're helping each other with our burdens. And then lastly, Christian relationships are to be places where we can be naked and unashamed. Now, hold on. Uh, Metaphorically, unless you're married. And we will talk about that. But but this whole idea of naked and unashamed, um, it's just, it's, it's, it's big. What they're getting at here is emotional and um, spiritual um, and, and for the married relationship, physical nakedness. And it's what we all want. I received an email last week, two weeks ago, and I actually emailed this person. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I did get permission to read some of it uh, because I think she expresses our heart. Uh, this is what she wrote. God has really been telling me to be more vulnerable and let people in, but what does that look like in real life? Amazing question. I have no problem with listening to others' problems and being there for other people, but letting people be there for me and being vulnerable just feels weird. When I do open myself, I always have a tendency to run because I feel like when people see the real me, I'm not going to be good enough, or I might let someone down, or they can use what they know to hurt me, um, or that me and my problems are just too much. It's like I'm too much, but never enough all at the same time. (laughs) 
I was almost ready to marry my last boyfriend, but he knew really nothing, capital letters, about me. All he knew was that uh, what I wanted him to know about me. It's not his fault at all, but I never felt comfortable telling him everything about me, even though I knew nothing about, or even though I knew everything about him. I grew really good at hiding the real me and only showing people what they wanted to see so that they never saw the real me and I never had to be vulnerable. When I came to downtown church, the dam that I'd built around my heart finally broke because with everything going on in my life, it was just too much. Everything that I'd been so scared to let anyone see came out, leaving me vulnerable. I'm truly thankful that God has torn down the walls and allowed me to be vulnerable and say once um, for all that I'm, I was not okay. But at the same time, I'm still struggling with the fear that I'm too much of a problem. I find myself fighting the urge to throw the walls back up or fighting the urge simply to leave before I mess up, before I stop being a blessing and start being a burden to those around me. I love, capital letters, um, being around you guys, meaning the church. But at the same time, I still have the urge to run. But ultimately, I don't want to leave. I want to, to fight through it and learn how to live vulnerable. What she is longing for is what we were made for. It's what we all want. We want to be naked and accepted, unashamed. We want somebody to know everything and still say, I love you. Do you want to know what happens? I'll show you the extreme of what happens. Go to Newtown when we reject that. Now, this is much more complicated maybe than I'm about to say it, but I've noticed one thing among all the people that are committing these mass murders. They are all described by one word. You know the word? Loner. They don't have anybody in their lives that's a helper suitable. They don't have anyone that's coming in and fighting for them. We don't have any, they don't have anyone that's coming in and, and opposing the evil that's in their minds. You see, isolation is the devil's playground. We had a couple share their story recently here at the church. And there was a lot of sin, but there was a lot of redemption. And I have never had more positive impact from a body of people than after that, that service. Why? Because all of us want a place that we could stand up and confess our, our, our worst, most embarrassing thing. And have a body of people still come around us and say, I love you. Dear friends, do you understand that's what this church is supposed to be? And do you see how the devil has won in his work in the church that has promoted self-righteousness over humility and brokenness? That has said, we are a city on a hill that tells the, the world their sins. Come be like us and you will be free. When all we are, all we were made to be, all we were called to be, is just honest about our sin, banding together as helper suitable, crying out to God, say, save us. And then opening the doors and saying, world, is that appealing to you? Do you know what sin is? You see the confession this week by Lance Armstrong? Do you know? And 
Do you know why he did it? He says because he said because I couldn't lie to my son any longer. He was defending me, and I couldn't let him do it anymore. And everybody said, "Oh yeah, right. You've got some. You just want to do get back into racing." Oh come on, people. I believe that. That's real because that's human. Dear friends, the world wants a place they can come and be accepted. Not just, okay, come in, we accept your sin, be whoever you want to be. People know sin is wrong. But they want a place where they can come in and they can tell people what they're struggling with and they can still be loved. I know that because that's what I want and that's what you want. And that's what we're supposed to be. The only way to do that is if we're a community that is only built on confession and profession. The confession of our sin and the profession that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We can never rise above that, friends. It must be the operating principle of our community. I can never rise above the reality of my confession that I'm a sinner. Because when I do, then I have all the power in the world to kill you. I must preach my sin and I must believe it. I all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that does apply to me. But all are justified freely by His grace through faith. And so our confession is sin, our profession is Jesus. Do you believe that this morning? Notice I didn't ask, are you a Christian or non-Christian? There are many people calling themselves Christians, then that's not their lifestyle. And that's all you've got to have. Well, I go to church, and I, it doesn't matter. Are you confessing your sin? And are you professing the righteousness and the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ? That's what a Christian is. And you can't redefine it. Do you know Jesus today? Those of us that know Jesus, are we living as if we know Jesus in community? May we live as confessors, and may we live as professors, and may we throw the doors open and say, world, if you want that, here it is. Come on in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this beautiful picture. We glorify your name because this is life itself. We praise You because this is hope. And I pray, Lord God, that You would give us the strength to love. Give us the strength to risk relationship in this community. Help us to be the body that You've called us to be, You've created us to be, and You've redeemed us to be. Come, Holy Spirit, and do something special among us that we might spread throughout this city, even this world, embracing the lowly and the broken and the hurting, showing them a community where they can be healed because we know the one who can heal them as he's healing us. Lord Jesus, make it so for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May we respond to the glorious grace of Jesus Christ who loves sinners, who came for sinners like you and me. May we respond as we give him our tithes and even go beyond that and say, that just doesn't feel like enough. <laughs> we're going to give you not only what you commanded, but we're going to give you more. We're going to give you our offerings. Let's respond like that. Not just in money, but with our life. Amen? Amen.